The docks were lined with people from all walks of life. From the wealthy Republicans of the city to the immigrants that occupied the tenement housing that was quickly taking over the available lands as more and more people found a new life on these islands. Who could have imagined this? Just a year after the worst draft riots that the divided nation had ever seen. In July 1863, poor white immigrants, many of whom were the Irish who had fled their homeland due to the British created famine that had claimed a million of their countrymen, women and children, rose up due to the circumstances around them that were changing once again. With the United States divided into Union and Confederate areas, the black people of the South had been fleeing to the land that rejected their continual enslavement. However, they fled to a land that that continued blight, the sensationalist journalist, had played with works of fiction sold as fact. Works that were derogatory toward the black people and ridiculed them and warned of dangers of social mingling stirred resentment and the logical fear of losing work. This coupled with the Enrollment Act of 1863 allowed the wealthy who could gather $300 together to buy out of the draft for soldiers, at the exception of black men from the draft as they were not predominantly considered citizens, meant the focus of the draft was upon the white working class. Anger at the first drafts soon turned into violence that spiraled out of control. The white workers began attacking the black people of Manhattan as well as the wealthy residences of the Republicans. When the police superintendent, dressed in clothes that were not his uniform, went to inspect, he was recognized and beaten to a pulp, enraging the police that stormed the mob with revolvers and batons drawn. But the riots continued. Soon the crowds were attacking the homes of abolitionists, as well as attacking white women that were married to black men. The riots grew to such an extent that much-needed regiments at the front of the American Civil War were drawn away and put on forced marches to New York in order to cover the city with soldiers and quell the rioters' first for violence. Nevertheless, the rioters continued with the violence, even under the threat of the guns of the army, and continued even to lynch black men of the city, with 11 being hung in total. Eventually, the army saw the need, in order to hurry the end of the violence, to pack the cannons that had been brought forth, not with iron balls, but rather with grapeshot. With the burning of the fuses, a great maiming of life happened before the guns of the Union soldiers. The grapeshot ripped limbs from body, peppered torsos with jagged holes, and ultimately, with a show of supreme violence, brought the will of the rioter to heal. Estimates go from the low hundreds in numbers to 2,000 of people that died in those bloody days. But even though the divisions within New York society between wealthy, poor, white and black would remain, there were events that brought the city together in wonder. And one of those was this one. Welcome to the Arctung History Podcast. Written and presented by myself, Simon J. James, and produced by the BerlinTourGuide.com. This week, Murder on the Tracks, Episode 4, The Drop.
So they stood, different accents, different languages, different everything. They watched from the harbour front as the ship, its free masts raising high and decked in half-stowed sails, came sailing along the waters that many had sailed themselves. This was the Victoria, the Victoria that had left London on the 15th of July, and now on this bright, sunny August day, the 25th, it sailed into port at its destination, New York. The newspapers had been drumming up interest since first word had broken in the United States of the horrid crime as reported by the European correspondents. They had continued to announce interest over the cases Inspector Tanner, Mr. Matthews and Death, along with Sergeant Clark steamed into New York on the city of Manchester steam and sail ship. On the 7th, with many more days to go until the expected arrival of the ship, the Victoria that carried the suspected murderer of Mr. Briggs, Franz Muller, Inspector Tanner read the New York Times with a degree of annoyance, as naturally the blight referred to him as Inspector Turner rather than Tanner. But he was not alone in his frustrations, for the paper had also spelt Matthews with just a singular T rather than the double to which Mr. Matthews possessed within his name. On the 8th, Inspector Tanner read the New York Times once again. The great excitement of the railroad murder of Mr. Briggs has not abated. Today's steamer will take another officer to New York with duplicate papers endorsed by Mr. Adams, the American minister, for the arrest of Franz Müller, a German tailor who appears to have been a quite inoffensive fellow. But mad as a hatter about gold watches. His one life dream was to have a gold watch to wear. He saved his earnings till he bought one, but was robbed of it and his only happiness some months ago. He could not live without a gold watch. He could not wait to earn one, so he waylaid an old bank clerk in a first-class carriage, snatched away his watch, and in the scuffle, murdered him. The broken watch chain has been traced to him, and also the hat left in the railway carriage. He is believed to have left London in the New York packet Victoria, and officers have been sent by two steamers to await his arrival in New York. Of such importance was the story that Tanner noted the report occupied the top corner of the second page, whilst the front page was almost entirely printed with the manoeuvres, exchanges and troubles of the American Civil War. Many days passed for the inspector and his chief witnesses, who the case so heavily relied upon, but there was little to do. First Muller had to arrive, and then they could begin processing the extradition request. Tanner and the New York police had, however, come to the arrangement that Franz Muller would be arrested on the boat so that he would never set foot in the United States as a free man, only as a prisoner and suspect in a heinous crime. Tanner had been to Sandy Hook already to see the pilots who would bring in the Victoria safely to dock. There, he informed all of the pilots of the special cargo that the Victoria was carrying and not to allow any man to board their ships. He also informed them that the first pilot ship to the Victoria must inform the captain, a captain champion of the news, for surely he would have heard no news of the fact he was carrying at that moment the most wanted man in the western world. Then the day came, the day when all of the city was stood watching the Victoria come sailing in. The packet ship was not to sail immediately to New York, no, there was far too much processing to do with immigrants and to ensure that the passengers were healthy and not bearing diseases. So the Victoria had to dock at Staten Island. The pilot's boats crew that had sailed out had done as Tanner wished, 
The captain was informed and Captain Champion did his best to separate without causing suspicion the passengers from the murderer. Yet as Tanner, Clark, and the officers of the New York police sailed out to meet the ship on another pilot boat, a man from within the crowd decided to take it upon himself to warn the young German aboard, or maybe he was in fact a member of that sensationalist play. As he cried from the harbour wall, How are you, Muller the murderer? Tanner was fortunate that the ears of Muller did not ring with the warning of the desire for an extreme reaction and remained oblivious to the arrival of the police. Captain Champion, at this moment, concocted a clever plan to quell any unrest that might happen and ordered the passengers of the Victoria aft for medical examination. Muller was then called by a member of the crew into the ship's saloon. In the saloon waiting were Tanner, Clark, and the New York police officers, who would officially make the arrest, but the satisfaction would belong solely to the two men of the Metropolitan Police. So, as the fair-haired German stood before them, a moment of realization became recognizable within the features of the native of Saxe-Weimar-Eisenach, as his skin flushed its color in favor of a ghostly white. So unusual for a man who had been at sea for the better part of the month. Muller, Tanner asked as a formality. Yes, sir, Muller responded, recognizing the authority that the man carried, even when not in uniform. Franz Muller, formerly of 16 Park Terrace Row. Yes, sir, that is I, Muller answered, his eyes moving between those who stood before him in the saloon of the Victoria. Good. You know why we are here, Tanner asked. No, sir. Oh, you don't. Well, I'm sure you recognize Mr. Matthews and Mr. Deff here, for they recognize you, isn't that right, gentlemen? The cabman and the jewelry shop owner nodded. Good. So, Mr. Muller, do you understand now? No. No, sir, I do not. You still do not. Well, allow myself to enlighten you. These gentlemen here, he pointed to the New York police officers, they're here to arrest you. Arrest me, stammered the scared German. Yes, Mr. Muller. Arrest you. We see that you killed Mr. Thomas Briggs on the 9th of July and the 9.50 from French Church Street Station, attacking him and throwing his body from the first-class carriage numbered 69 on the North London Railway. But, but I wasn't on that train, stuttered Muller. It was at this moment that Sergeant Clark interjected and asked an officer of the New York police by the name of Tiernan to search Mr. Muller. Tiernan did as he was asked. Clark and Tanner could not do it themselves. They did not have the authority. So they asked it of the people who did. Tiernan searched the pockets of the shocked German and eventually pulled, from within a waistcoat pocket, a small key. What is this key of? asked Clark. The key to my box, replied Muller. And where is your box? By my berth. Clark looked to Tanner and Tanner looked to the captain champion. Berth number nine, Champion informed the inspector. Clark quickly left with the key in hand. At the berth number nine, Clark found a black box, into the lock of which he placed the key and turned for confirmation. Without searching the box, he locked it once again and returned to the saloon. Is this your box? asked Tanner. It is, that is my box. Clark once again put the key into the lock and turned it, opening the lid. As Clark rummaged through the man's possessions, Tiernan looked on curiously, as did Tanner and all the others who were gathered in the saloon. Clark, from a corner of the box, produced a piece of leather that had stitching along its side. 
Clark could feel through the leather the shape. It was round and quite thick, with a good weight to it. He immediately presumed it to be a watch, but nevertheless turned to Mullen. What is this? he questioned. It's it is my watch, the German replied. And this? Is this your hat? Clark was now holding a hat in his hand. The hat was somewhat crumpled. Its full height had been knocked down and the lining had, in turn, been padded out. Yes, it, it's mine. How long have you possessed them? I have had the watch about two years and the hat about twelve months. Clark inspected the hat further. Beneath the tissue paper there was a name, somewhat hidden by the crumpled nature of the hat, but it read, Digano, 18, Royal Exchange, London. Have you? It was Turner's turn to interrupt. Stated that you lost a ring upon this ship? Yes, I have, but I did not lose it. It, it could only have been stolen from me. Tell me, what sort of ring it is, and I will endeavour to find it. It is a gold ring with a stone in it, Muller stated. Was it a red stone? No, no, it was a white one. A gold ring with a plain white stone, reiterated Tanner. No, a gold ring with a plain white stone which had a bead upon it. I got it in Cheapside and gave seven shillings sixpence for it, Tanner nodded. Now, Mr. Muller, I'm not here to hear your pleas, that is for a judge in the future to your trial. I am just here to state the facts as they have presented themselves before me. But, as I was saying, despite the fact you murdered on English soil, I do not have the authority to arrest you. That is down to these gentlemen. Tanner nodded to Tienan, who began. Mr. Muller, you are charged with the murder of Thomas Briggs. On the 9th of July, 1864, on a train from French Church Street Station, Tiernan stammered through the charge, not knowing London and the details intimately. Good, Tanner finished. These men will now take you into their custody, and tomorrow you will be presented at an extradition hearing before being taken back to London to answer for your heinous crime. With this, the New York policemen took Mr. Muller, after Tanner had given them the nod of confirmation, and escorted the German man from the ship to the sound of the cheering of a crowd on the shore. With Muller arrested and taken from the ship, Tanner took the time to speak with Captain Champion to garner an understanding of what the new prisoner of the New York police had been like on the voyage. The captain informed Tanner that he had been a quiet passenger and behaved fairly well, but as usual, as men confined together so often become, there had been moments of violence. Muller, having found himself in a brawl after he accused a fellow passenger of stealing a golden ring from his possession, receiving a black eye after accusing the passenger of being a thief and robber. He had no money on his person, and at one point had apparently tried to earn some by offering to eat five pounds, or roughly around two kilos, of German sausage. Needless to say, Muller failed in his bid, and was forced to settle his bet by gifting two of his white shirts, and by standing porter all round, doing the bidding of others upon the ship. With the day drawing a close, all was left was for the sensationalists to put a turn at placing the nibs of their pens at paper, and painting an imaginative account of the day's proceedings from the press the next day. A writer for the New York Times wrote, It is unnecessary here to repeat the circumstances attending the diabolical assassination, the motives that led to the commission of the crime, the zealous efforts that were made by the police of London, Liverpool, Manchester, and other cities in England to ferret out and apprehend the criminal, or by the means of which, at last, Muller was traced to the ship Victoria, just as she was on the point of sailing for New York. All these facts have been fully published both in the English and New York papers. 
Later on Wednesday afternoon, a telegram from Sandy Hook was received at the telegraph station at Quarantine Landing. The Victoria was in eight. Immediate steps were consequently taken to board her, and at 9.30 o'clock in the evening, when the packet entered the waters of the upper quarantine, the London officers, accompanied by Officer Tierman, also spelt wrong, of the New York detective force, and Messrs. Deff and Matthews, still spelt wrong, who went for the purpose of identifying Muller, enter in a health official's boat. And with the latter official, they all proceeded toward the Victoria. He, Muller, does not seem to have had the most remote idea that he could be tracked down and followed across the Atlantic, and it was not until some time after the pilot boarded the ship that his suspicions were aroused, and he was suddenly started from his fancied security and led seriously to reflect upon the appalling condition in which he was placed. The illusion under which he had slept during his passage of the Atlantic was broken in the wise. When the Victoria was in the vicinity of Sandy Hook, she met a smaller steamer containing a party of excursionists. The publicity given to the fact that Muller, the English railway murderer, was expected to arrive by the Victoria induced many on board the excursion boat to shout aloud. And soon as they saw the ship, they shouted, How are you, Muller the murderer? Upon hearing this cry repeated several times, the captain and others who were in the secret of the Victoria noticed the Muller gave a sudden start. As though an electric shock had passed through him, he walked nervously around the deck all the time looking first in one direction and then in another, as if calculating his chances of leaping overboard and swimming to the nearest hills, some of which were in view. As the ship proceeded up the bay, Muller was observed to grow more and more nervous and uneasy. Several times he asked questions of some of the officers and crew of the vessel, relative to the land which could be seen on either side, what kind of a country, it was back of the hills, how far they were from New York, if there were any large towns where they were telegraph officers before they got to the city, etc., and etc. The captain therefore concluded to iron him and place him in his own cabin until he could deliver him to the proper officials in New York. For this purpose, he and some of his officers, all armed with revolvers and having iron secreted about them, were about to proceed to confine him. So, the New York Times wrote, contrary to the reports made by the captain to the officers and the officers' own recordings of that day. Either way, from the reality to the sensationalism, Mr. Muller was escorted from the Victoria. In the custody of the New York police, he was transferred to Broom Street. Whilst at Broom Street, New York officials had conversations with Muller, questioning him over his version of events, his own movements, as well as the journey. Muller answered some of the questions, but was quite reticent to the line of questioning. Again and again, he stated to those that were interviewing him that he was innocent of the crime and any crime that might go with it. He went even further to state that if it were to go to trial, he would prove his innocence by the production of an alibi. A day later, the 26th of August, 1864, Muller was brought before a hearing for his extradition. Presiding over the hearing was Commissioner Chas W. Newton. At two o'clock in the afternoon, Muller was brought by Detectives Tierman and Farley of the New York Police into Marshal Murray's office, where Tanner and Clark were waiting. Commissioner Newton was waiting... He had already laid out the preparations for the extradition hearing, having been informed weeks prior that one would be requested due to the advanced time the British had in America over Franz Muller's arrival. Representing Britain was F.F. F. Marbury, counsel to the British consul in New York. Commissioner Newton called Mr. Muller forward to address him directly within the district court room. Mr. Muller, he began, are you ready with your counsel? He asked inquisitively due to the fact that Mr. Muller stood alone within the room. I, I do not have a counsel, sir. None? 
No, sir, none. I have no money to employ any. Bearing in mind that Muller had tried to eat over two kilos of sausages on the ship for some money, failed and subsequently had to give up two shirts, Franz Muller was broke. Then, Mr. Muller, I will request of a former judge, Judge Berber, to look after your interests during this preliminary examination. Will you do so, Judge Berber? I will, sir, replied the old judge. Then, continue the commissioner, I adjourn this hearing until eleven o'clock in the morrow, so that you, Judge Berber, may acquaint yourself with the facts and particulars of the case. With the adjournment, there came more time for the people of New York to be stirred with interest in the case from the reports of the papers. Quickly, most citizens of the city became aware of the mid-twenties slim and slender German, as the papers described, who was fair and mild-mannered, but not forgetting, as their opening paragraphs like to remind, was a brutal and mindless murderer. On the 27th, therefore, the courtroom was packed with people from all walks of life of the great city. It was a spectacle, an opera or theatre premiere that would never be repeated, therefore a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Cues grew outside of the district office. At the end of the hearing, the proceedings went to press and read, The courtroom was crowded to excess yesterday morning by a curious people anxious to catch a glimpse of Muller, the man who perpetrated such horrible a murder in such a remarkable place as a public railway car. The prisoner looked, as he has all the way through the affair since his arrest, perfectly stupefied and idiotic. The commissioner stated that the engagements of Judge Bieber prevented him attending to the case of the prisoner, and he should be obliged to assign counsel. If the prisoner had anyone whom he would prefer, the court would assign that gentleman. The prisoner said he was a stranger here and knew no one. He would be satisfied with the gentleman the commissioner designated. In response to further inquiry, Muller said he had a sister here, residing at number 139 Nassau Street. He expected she would be in court. At the request of Mr. Newton, Messrs. Edmund Blankman and Shawnee Schaefer consented to watch the case in behalf of the prisoner. Mr. F. Marbury then proceeded to open the case. He produced the requisition for Franz Muller, charged with the murder of Thomas Briggs in the county of Middlesex, in the city of London, on the 9th of July, 1864. It was the duty of the court to ascertain if the proofs offered to him were sufficient to commit the prisoner to trial, if the offence had been committed in the country. Mr. Marbury then recapitulated the main points of the case, which are already familiar to the public. Mr. Marbury then offered to read the dispositions taken before Mr. Henry, the London police magistrate. Mr. Schaefer objected to the reading of the dispositions on the ground that in the criminal proceedings no ex parte statements could be received unless an opportunity was given to him to cross-examine the parties so testifying. Mr. Marbury said the Act of Congress provided for their reading when certified to, as in this instance by the United States Minister. Mr. Schaefer said that the Act in question provided that the depositions should be received as evidence with such authentication in the foreign country from whence the criminal fled. He submitted that there was no proof to show that these depositions, as now authenticated, would be received in England. Mr. Marbury claimed that the certificate of the United States Minister, Adams, was a sufficient authentication for all the purposes of the preliminary examination. In addition to this, they had the officers who were present at the examination and saw the witnesses sworn and sign the depositions now offered in evidence. Mr. Blankman remarked that the court had deemed it right and proper that the accused, a stranger in a strange land, charged with a most heinous offence, should have counseled to defend him. In accordance with the motive which led to the assignment, it was their duty to see that none of the rights and privileges of the accused were neglected. It was their duty to see that no slipshod examination took place, and that the forms of the law were strictly complied with. 
He contended that these depositions were not legally and properly authenticated as required by the law. The certificate of the United States Minister that Mr. Henry was a duly qualified magistrate was not the question. The proposition was whether these papers could be used in a trial for murder in England. He contended that they could not, and if they could not be admitted there, why under the Act of Congress they could not be admitted in this examination. The Commissioner held that the depositions were sufficiently authenticated and admitted them in evidence. The first deposition read was that of Thomas J. Briggs, a son of the murdered man. Further depositions were read from Benjamin Ames, the railway conductor, John Deff, the jeweller, Mr. Matthews, Mrs. Matthews, John Haffer, David Buchan, Timms, Berriton, Dugan, and more. Mr. Marbury then called Tanner. Tanner produced the cane, hat, and even the box with Deff's name on it. For hours they continued to go over the details of the case. Berriton's inspection of the carriage number 69, the number of yards between stations to which the body was found, the time it would take to walk between stations, and so on and so forth. The case was once again closed and adjourned for another night till the next morning at 11 o'clock once again. The next day the city was just as excitable as before, and when evening came those who could not clamour into the courtyard ran for the evening press that would report the results of the inquiry. A dense crowd filled the courtroom yesterday morning in anticipation of the rendition of a decision in the Muller extradition case. Excitement was intense for the prisoner entered accompanied by his counsel. Mr. Blankman said that the opportunity for consultation between the prisoner and his counsel had been very limited. The questions arising in the case were intricate and required careful attention. As yet, they had had no opportunity for preparations, and they therefore respectfully asked for an adjournment until the latter part of the week. He ensured the court that the proponent was only asked for the purpose stated and not for delay. As a precedent, he referred to the case of Anderson, who, after committing an atrocious murder in the United States, fled to Canada, where, after a delay of months, the case was finally adjudicated upon in London, which resulted in the release of Anderson, on the ground that he was a slave and the deed was committed in making his escape. He would also refer to a later case. A brutal and cruel murder was committed on an American vessel. The pirates and murderers escaped to Liverpool, where the cause was adjourned from month to month, and finally the British government declined to deliver upon the prisoner. But he did not claim that because one nation refused to do a right, another should follow its example. Another feature in this case was that no finding of proceedings of a coroner's inquest had ever been produced here. In fact, there had been no inquest at all. But if the documents did show that a case of murder had been made, his honour's duty was clear. But if the case was one of a manslaughter, it did not come within the Treaty of 1842. His client positively asserted his entire innocence of the charge and that he thought the small delay asked was as little as the court could grant. In reply, Mr. Marbury said that the depositions were here all day yesterday. They were read in court repeatedly. They were not long or intricate. His honour was sitting here not to try and guilt or innocence of the man, but ascertain if there was in the case sufficient evidence to justify this committal in the case of murder had been committed in this country. He disliked to do anything which looked like bearing harshly upon the unfortunate man, but the case seemed so plain, and the man, if sent back, would be placed where he could secure witnesses, where he would have a fair trial, according to the law of England. Witnesses were here from England at a great expense, and it would cause great inconvenience if the case was postponed. The court said that if he supposed the counsel had not had an opportunity, he would grant the delay asked, but the evidence was short and had been read in court repeatedly. He did not think the interest of the prisoner would suffer by a refusal, and he should deny the application. 
Mr. Schaefer then rose and said that after some examination of the matter, he thought it had now become his duty to move for the discharge of the prisoner. There were insuperable legal objections to the detention of this man. The law must deem him innocent, and let him but today declare his intentions to become a citizen, and the shield of the country would be thrown around him. In his mind there was a sublimity in the sudden awakening of England to revenge the blood of one of its citizens. He did not consider this treaty as anything but a violation of the Constitution. The amendment to the Constitution provided that no man should be put in peril of his life without an indictment by a grand jury. The Treaty of 1842 provided that fugitives should be rendered upon on certain conditions. This man, if rendered upon, would be convicted before he had been indicted. According to the article, Mr. Schaefer continued to waffle on in his spirited defence of Mr. Muller. With the use of articles that made mention of war, he referenced piracy committed by British vessels on America to a packed courtroom, he roared. These Englishmen, who are today committing depredations upon our commerce, must be restrained by their government, or else they were in a state of war with this country. To say that this state of war does not exist with Great Britain was to forget the events of the last three years. True, one side claimed to be neutral, but they let their subjects burn and destroy your ships. They let them get on board your peaceful ships to murder your engineers and pilots at the wheel, and when they take the vessel into a neutral port, they make them pay $10,000 for a ransom. And when at last a man of war sinks one of these neutral pirates, they send a yacht to rescue your lawful prisoners from the victor's clutches. The crowd, vied by Mr. Schaefer's speech that played so well to the times, erupted into a round of applause, many standing to cheer the speech. It was as if Mr. Schaefer himself had declared war between Britain and the United States, which in some part he had. They that will have justice must do justice. England must come here with clean hands into this court of justice, and she is not here with clean hands. Here is an opportunity to recognise the principle that a state of war did always with the operation of treaties. Upon finishing his rousing dialogue, he turned to repeat the evidence against Muller, reviewing it as he went and arguing there was no evidence to hold the accused. With Mr. Schaefer firmly back within his seat, although looking to the crowd that adrenaline had taken over much of his veins, it was for Mr. Marbury to once again present the facts and argue for the extradition. Tanner was called upon once more, as were Deaf and Matthews. So in the evening, the people of New York clambered at the newsstands and at the hands of the paperboys distributing the papers to read the result. The commissioner said he did not think this case required any further time for consideration on his part. After hearing and noting with great care the remarks of the defence, I have only to decide whether there is sufficient cause to believe the man guilty. Looking at it in the light of probable cause, I think my duty is plain. I do not desire to sit in judgment upon this man, but I think there is probable cause to hold him for trial, and I have therefore decided to grant the usual certificate. Muller did not seem affected in the least by this decision, acting more like an indifferent spectator than a criminal on trial. There it was. Muller, having arrived on the 25th, was told on the 28th that he was to be extradited. New York was gripped, but London still had no idea. It was for the British Council in New York now to arrange for Mr. Muller, along with Tanner and Clark, as well as the witnesses Deff and Matthews, as passage back to Britain. On the 3rd of September, Muller, along with Tanner and Clark, Deffs and Matthews, was taken to the docks once more. 
This time all would enjoy passage on the steamship Etna, and never of the so-named Inman line of which Tanner and Clark had sailed for the United States upon the city of Manchester. This time Muller would also get to enjoy the relative comfort of the Inman ships, rather than bunking in the hull of a slow, iron-carrying packet ship. To entertain Muller in the voyage, he had been gifted the Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens, which he enjoyed greatly as the ship sailed through the choppy waters. Upon finishing this, someone was thoughtful enough to provide him then with David Copperfield, after he had praised the book highly, and especially its accounts of the trial of Bardell versus Pickwick. To Tanner and Clark, they were quite astounded by the behaviour of Muller. For a man wanted in a brutal murder, who had apparently committed a crime of opportunity to steal a golden watch, his, Muller's, conduct upon the boat had been exemplary. He even commented on how much he was enjoying the food on the Etna more than the Victoria, and thanked his captors for this. It was little more than ten days since the Etna set sail from New York that it arrived in its brief stop of Queenstown in Ireland, today's cove, but famous for where many of the survivors of the ill-fated Lusitania would arrive after the sinking of the ship by German U-boat on the 7th of May 1915. In Cove, as the Etna docked to let off passengers and let those on wishing to make the relatively short journey onwards to Liverpool, a Daily Telegraph reporter was allowed a brief visit with Muller. The reporter was quite surprised to find a man, charged not only with murder, but the first on a British railway, and with the weight of the British opinion against him and facing a rope and drop, was quite cheerful. It has also appeared that during the course of the voyage that Tanner and Clark had become quite trusting of the man when asked if he might have the iron cufflinks with which he was restrained removed for the purpose of the interview, they obliged, under the promise he would not cause any trouble. On the deck, closely followed by the police, Muller walked with the reporter. He watched the waters and pointed out a shoal of porpoises and even, looking to the distance, pointed out cows on the Irish coast that the reporter marvelled that only a man with extraordinarily good eyesight would usually be able to see. The two wandered the deck for a little longer, but soon the bell was rung. The reporter had to disembark, and the ship set sail for its final destination once again. As crowds had awaited him in New York, even larger crowds awaited his return to the country that had only been his home for two years but they did not lie in the docks of Liverpool to welcome a countryman, but rather they awaited the man who had caught their imaginations. Images of a foul man, old and wiry, circled with images of a man devilish in appearance. All wanted to see just who was Franz Muller. The ship docked on the 16th of September, as the sun was passing down over the horizon. The officers allowed all of us to disembark first, from on board, the sound of a thousand or more people muttering to one another as each individual descended the gangway, muttering their debates as to whom was the murderer. Finally, they got what they came to see. Led by Tanner, Muller was led in iron cufflinks from the Etna. Onto the cold hard stone dock they stepped, and quickly, as crowds pursued, they ran into one of the dock buildings. In a small office for a moment they breathed with relief, but then the door swung open, a man well-dressed walked with confidence into the room and grabbed Mr. Muller's hand. And you, you are Franz Muller, he said as he shook Muller's hand. Well, I am glad to see you and shake hands with you. Do you think you'll be able to prove your innocence? I, I do, replied Muller. You know, Muller, the gentleman's voice audibly rose so that the whole room could hear. 
Tanner and Clark looked on somewhat still in shock at the gentleman's arrival. This is a very serious charge. Tanner and Clark finally snapped to attention and grabbed the snobbish gentleman and dragged him from the room. In the dock buildings, they spent the night, waiting for the first light to break and for them all to make a hasty retreat from the docks to Lime Street Station and head back for London. But wherever they travelled, crowds were waiting for them, booing, cheering, jeering and shouting. Muller was a hero to some, having captured imaginations of an international chase. Others, he was the embodiment of their hatred some felt towards the German people for the Prussian and Austrian attack on Denmark. Others were just swept along with a tide of popular interest. They travelled from Lime Street for Euston on the Saturday morning, but at Euston crowds were once again gathered. Through the mobs the police pressed, Muller seemingly not revelling in the crowds, but also not fearful of it. He remained as he had done for much of his time in New York and on the Etna, placid. From Euston the crime came full circle as Muller was taken to Bow, where he was to be charged, which he was, and then removed to Holloway Prison. Holloway Prison rose as a mock Tudor castle and was just twelve years in age when Muller was taken through the gates, but he had not long to wait. Britain, its courts and press had waited for over two months to press charges against the culprit of the first murder on British Railway, and after just two nights' stay, he was once again stood before a court. The Monday magisterial hearing began at the Bow Street Police Court and presided over by Mr. Flowers. Lord Halsbury prosecuted for the Crown, and Muller was provided with a solicitor by the name of Thomas Beard. Beard had been paid for and advised on the case by the German Legal Protection Society that enjoyed much support from patrons within London and abroad. The evidence was presented before the court, much of which you have already heard throughout this series. However, there was a new piece of evidence. The hat manufacturers of whom Mr. Thomas Briggs, the murdered, was a client, confirmed that it was indeed a hat of their own make that Mr. Muller was found in possession of, and it had been reduced by one to one and a half inches in height. But it was not done so, to their belief, by a hat maker, for the adjustments had not been made with a hat maker's gum to seal the linings, and seemed to have been done by someone who may have known how to work with materials, but not just hats. Perhaps a tailor? The inquest ran on for a week, with Muller remanded in custody at Holloway. Finally, a week after the coroner's inquest had begun, on the 26th of September, a verdict was returned to those gathered within the Bow Street Police Court that Franz Muller was guilty of murder and that he should be charged as such. Asked if he had anything to say by the magistrate, Muller responded, No, sir, I have nothing to say now. Mr. Flowers therefore saw it fit that Muller be placed on criminal trial for murder at London's famous courthouse, the Old Bailey. The public had another month now to wait until there was time in the busy schedule of the Old Bailey, and whilst other preparations were being made, most notably on the side of the defence, who had not managed to field any evidence as such in the initial hearing. Then finally, on the 27th of October, with the honourable and highly regarded judges Lord Chief Baron, Sir Frederick Pollock, and Mr. Baron Martin, on the bench. For the Crown, Sir Robert Collier, Solicitor-General, was to lead the attack against Mr. Muller, Sir Collier would face off with Sergeant Parry for the defence, along with Mr. Beard, who still acted as Muller's solicitor. Sir Collier, the Solicitor-General, began the proceedings. Gentlemen of the jury, 
It is my duty to state to you the circumstances of a most extraordinary murder, and to inform you of the evidence which will be laid before you, warranting the conclusion that the murder was committed by the prisoner at the bar. Gentlemen, this is a case which had excited unusual and painful interest. It is one which, as we all know, has been canvassed and discussed in almost every newspaper. I might say almost every house in the kingdom, and it is one on which some persons might be inclined already to form an opinion. I must entreat you, gentlemen, in approaching this most solemn inquiry, to discard from your minds anything that you may have heard, everything that you may have read upon the subject. I appear on the part of the prosecution with a true desire to do justice to the prisoner. I will try him upon the evidence, and upon the evidence alone. What ho, Simon here. Sorry for the interruption. This isn't the end of the episode, but a quick interjection to ask if you are enjoying the Arctic History Podcast that you consider leaving a rating. And if you can, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash Arctic History to help support the continued production of this podcast. Now back to the episode. It was a strong opening from Sir Collier. He knew where the evidence lay. It lay in the chain, the two hats, the gold pocket watch, and the jeweled box. The evidence, as they say, was stacked against Muller, who remained calm within the box, but hung on every word occasionally muttering with his solicitor. Sir Collier continued to sum up the movements of Mr. Briggs on the night of the 9th of July. He paid testament to the gentleman's character, but did not insert Muller into the story. Rather, he continued with an approach of evidence and did not degrade the narrative by fanciful placement. He described the blood in the carriage, the scene that awaited Vinay and Jones, and then... There was also found in that carriage a hat. And that is a circumstance of the utmost possible significance. Gentlemen, that that hat was not Mr. Briggs's is beyond all doubt. The hat was crushed apparently as if it had been trod upon in a struggle. And Mr. Briggs's hat was not found. The conclusion appears to me inevitable that the murderer in the hurry and excitement of the moment, took the wrong hat. He took Mr. Briggs's hat with him and left his own. I venture to think that one point in this case may not be disputed as this, that the man, whoever he was, who robbed and murdered Mr. Briggs, left his hat in that carriage. If you discover with certainty the person who wore that hat on that night, you will have the murderer and the case is proved almost as clearly against him as if he was seen to do it. Sir Collier spoke, knowing that this argument was the foundation of the case, and he knew the outcome. The hat in the carriage belonged to Muller. The cab driver Matthews could testify to that as he had purchased it for Muller, and Muller was found in possession of Mr Briggs's own. Nevertheless, Sir Collier continued, then on a description of Mr. Muller and what he had gathered 
was a fair understanding of his character. He described how Muller, the day after the murder, was in possession of Mr. Briggs's chain before going on to summarise much of what you already know. For over two and a half hours, Sir Collier described the details as he knew them, and he knew them well. The pricings paid in the jewellers, the ship tickets and times, the research was all done well, and finally it was time to proceed with the witnesses. Soon, Mr. Briggs's niece and her husband, David Buchan, were called. T. Fishbourne, the ticket inspector. Vinay and Jones of Robarts and Co., who discovered the bloody carriage. Ames, the conductor. Ekin, who found the body. Dugan, the first policeman on the scene. Tolman, Brereton and Cooper, the doctors. Greenwood, the station master at Chalk Farm. Lambert, who had collected Briggs's possessions from Greenwood. Police Constable Kerrissey, Dr. Lefferby, who made a scientific investigation of the carriage. The jewellers, John Deff and his brother George. Mr. and Mrs. Repsch, that Muller had worked for. Mr. and Mrs. Blythe, where he had stayed. And John Haffer, his friend. And on all the first day. And all for the prosecution. On the second, there was John Glass, an employee also at Hodgkinson's where Muller was last employed. Then three pawnbrokers who had all paid out on chains to Muller, two of which he redeemed. Then came the cabman, Jonathan Matthews, who was important as to making the connections. The hat, which was covered in great detail, and the jewellery box. He was followed then by his wife. Then Joseph Hennequart, who dispelled a story that Muller had told Mrs. Matthews that Mr. Hodgkinson had engaged Muller to go to New York. He was followed by Edward Watson of Mr. Walker's Hatmakers, who confirmed it was from Mr. Walker's. He was followed then by Mr. Walker himself, who agreed. Then came Gifford, who had sold the ticket to America to Muller and assistant Jacob Weist. Then came the inspectors Clark and Tanner, Thomas J. Briggs, the son of the murdered, and Mr. Briggs's own hatmaker, Digans. With the witnesses for the prosecution, all presented the second day of the trial, came to a close. And Sir Collier had done such an excellent job that the feeling within the courtroom was, why proceed? As far as those responsible for judgment were concerned, Muller was guilty. On the third day, Sergeant Parry had a difficult mountain to climb to overturn opinion. His own opening statement was equally as strong, but had to focus on tearing down the barricades that Sir Collier had constructed. He took aim at the unreliability of Mr. Matthews, who had been asked a number of questions. Did he read the newspaper? No, he did not. But yes, he did. Did he drink? No. He responded, no, he did not. But then once again, he said yes. Yes, he did all enjoy a drink every day within a tavern. Parry spoke. He is a man who gives his evidence in such an unsatisfactory manner that nobody of sensible men would for a moment pay any attention to it. And gentlemen, I say this of him, that he is evidently actuated by a desire to obtain the reward that has been offered for the conviction of the murder of Mr. Briggs. That has animated his whole conduct. I should be very sorry to charge him with being a party to the murder, but I should be very wicked if I were not to say that suspicion is pointing to him. Matthews could not say where he was on the night of the murder, but now he recollects he was at the Great Western Station from 7 to 11 o'clock that night. 
in that he is perfectly uncorroborated. There is, however, very little doubt that he gave Muller the hat in exchange for the waistcoat in November 1863. Now Mr. Matthews was examined very shortly indeed by the Solicitor General, and he said that this was the hat he believed of Muller, and he remembered it by the edges of the rims being turned up to resemble the one he had. That is his evidence-in-chief. Sergeant Parry continued on the line of the hat. Knowing it was the key piece of evidence, he tried desperately to sow uncertainty. Matthews had bought Muller the hat from his own hatmaker, Walker, so surely could it not have been that it was Matthews's who had left his hat in the carriage after the murder, taking Mr. Briggs's home by accident and then leaving it in his own home only for Muller to accidentally pick up the hat when he visited Mrs. Matthews a few days later. But it did not explain the chain exchange at the brother's death. Either way, Parry was continued on for a long time that only the prosecution was allowed to speak a closing piece, and that this was his only moment to sway the field of opinion in favour of Muller. Then came the witnesses for the defence. First Thomas Lee, who swore that on the night Mr Briggs's murder, that he'd seen two men in the carriage along with Mr Briggs just three or four minutes before the horrid events took place. One was large and with whiskers and the other tall, thin and dark, but Mr Lee's testimony broke down, when asked why he hadn't reported it, and then he seemed to get confused over how long and how well he had known the murdered. The next two witnesses were to confirm that hatmakers were changing their ways. George Byers said he would always use a gum, a shellac, but William Lee said he would stitch at times, and times have changed. Next came a woman and her female lodger who knew Muller and had seen Muller the ninth but could not say what time, but a telegram had been received that day which allowed her to remember the date. And finally, Charles Foreman, who drove an omnibus and had seen a lone man wearing one slipper sometime in the summer. It was after this that the defence concluded their case. Sergeant Parry had done what he could, but even he had to internally admit that it was a lost cause. The evidence, try as he might to deflect onto Matthews and create reasonable doubt, it seemed as if it was a shut case. All that was left to do was to wait for the verdict. The foreman, Mr. Isaac Moore, rose to his feet. He read the names of the jury aloud for all to hear, and the jury confirmed their identities. Then the clerk of Arines spoke, Gentlemen, are you agreed upon your verdict? The foreman answered, We are. How do you find the prisoner, continued the clerk, at the bar guilty or not guilty of the murder with which he is charged? Guilty, came the cry of the foreman. That is the verdict of you all? Yes. Prisoner of the bar, you have been convicted of the crime of willful murder. Have you anything to say why judgment of dying should not be given? The clerk asked as he turned to Muller. Muller continued to stand stoically behind the bar. He made no movement. No tear welled in his eye. No shudder of the shoulders or fist of exasperation formed. He remained silent. It was then Baron Martin, judge, to pass sentence. Franz Muller, his voice boomed within the wooden room. 
You have been found guilty of by the jury of the willful murder of Mr. Briggs. It is no part of our duty to express generally any opinion with respect to the verdict of the jury. It is their province to decide upon your guilt or innocence. But it is usual with judges to state in passing sentence if they entirely concur in that verdict. And they do so for two reasons. It is satisfactory to know if the opinions of the judges concur with that of the jury. And I am authorized by the chief baron to state, and I state on my own behalf, that we are perfectly satisfied with the verdict. If I had been one of the jury, I should have concurred in it. And I state so for the second reason, in order to remove entirely from your mind the possibility that you will live in this world much longer. Within a short period, you shall be removed from it by a violent death. May I speak? asked Mother. Yes, came the reply of the judge. I am perfectly satisfied with my judges and with the jury, but I have been convicted on false evidence and not a true statement. If the sentence is carried out, I shall die innocent. With that, Mother was removed from the bar and the courtroom. Quickly after the sentence was passed, the German society tried to obtain a remission of the sentence. They even placed a memorial together to present to the Home Secretary, Sir George Grey. King Wilhelm of Prussia, later the German Emperor, even apparently wrote to Her Majesty Queen Victoria to wade into the fray of Muller, a telegram that she herself forwarded to the Home Secretary but it came to naught in the defence of Muller. Accounts suggest that the German newspapers of the day went crazy of the result of the trial. The German society's abroad writing home appalled at what was seen as an injustice. The newspapers in the German kingdom suggested it was due to the war in Schleswig-Holstein that a noose was being placed over the head and around the neck of Franz Muller. The British satirical magazine Punch, the paper that coined the term comic, wrote this witty ditty. The German who clapped when diet der draw, execution to deal on the douchey. Howl against execution awarded by law to Muller in Carlcroft's stern clutches. Can the reason that Vaterland thus makes black white from applause for abuse shifts its song? But that our execution was probably right, and their own as demonstrably wrong. Ultimately, Franz Muller's death sentence was sealed when, after Sir George Grey, had reviewed all the protests sent to him, including those of King Wilhelm of Prussia, he released a statement. After careful consideration and carefully comparing the statements contained in the memorial with the evidence given at the trial, and after communicating fully with the two judges whom have tried the case of Muller, I see no ground on to which I can advise Her Majesty to remit the death penalty. So it came to the evening prior to the fateful date that had been set by the courts where Muller was to go onto the drop into death. The days he had spent incarcerated had not been lonely. Visit had persisted from Lutheran ministers, his solicitor, Mr. Beard, as well as members from the German society. To all, Muller remained calm and resigned to his fate, thanking each for their time that they had spent upon his case. But when Lutheran minister Dr. Capel asked if now Muller would like to admit to the crime, Muller still pleaded 
his innocence. Since being sentenced, Franz Muller had not been taken once more to that mock Tudor castle known as Holloway, but rather in Newgate, the most fateful of the British jails. Newgate had been in service since the 12th century and taken its name from a gate that once sat in a location within the Roman walls of London. The old prison had been destroyed during the Great Fire of London and afterwards rebuilt under a design by Christopher Wren until it was expanded upon in the 1770s by George Dance in a style from the French architect Francois Blondel known as Architecture Terrible. To discourage law-breaking was the purpose of such a horrible architecture. The new prison was finished in 1782, and a year later gallows were moved from Tyburn to Newgate. Since that year in which the gallows were erected outside of the prison walls so that all of those who had thirst for the low-life excitement of watching someone die, amongst others, had seen John Bellingham, assassin of Prime Minister Spencer Percival, hang in 1812. And now those very low lives were gathered outside the walls of Newgate, chanting and singing toward the building that contained Muller. Through the night, those outside pointed toward a point of light, breaking from a window high within the bleak facade of the prison. They pointed, for they knew it was the cell in which Muller lay. Old and young, men and women, boys and girls, all gathered, some finely dressed, others in rags. Beer was drunk, pipes were smoked, and the great fuses... The large-headed matches that burned even in strong winds and rain were tossed about the crowd to jeers as entertainment. But there was one thing that kept them warm throughout that miserable night when Thanatos's great wings cloaked the sky in a deathly dark, and that was the torment that they all reveled in. When the next morning broke, a rain fell from a heavy cloud that hung low over the city of London. The streets were awash with the mud and squalor that oozed on what was optimistically called a roadway. Still outside the walls, the crowd stood, eager to see the man convicted of committing the first murder upon British rail, whose story of escape to America had gripped the people for the past few months. Now that story was coming to a close. Only a length of rope separated it from its final and full stop. Inside, Dr. Capel prayed once more with Muller. Once more, he pleaded with Muller to confess so that he may be absolved of his sins. Once more, Muller rejected him. With this rejection, Muller was brought from the architecture terrible of Newgate Prison into Societe Repugnante of London. Catcalls, whistles, chants all were held by the majority of the crowd toward Muller. The detestable people whom onto which downtrodden is often placed as if it were an excuse for a behaviour so vile as to taunt a man who walks into his death. And yet, as Franz Muller walked that most famous of walks, the dead man's walk that took him over the cold stone flagging beneath which lay those that had taken the walk before him. Beneath the open grey sky, his freedom separated by an iron mesh, the words of Blake came to mind when he wrote, Robin Redbreast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. Now he walked within a cage, but he would die beneath an open sky. Amongst the crowd there stood a journalist for the times. Stood amongst this crowd, he had never felt such disgust. Disgust at his fellow man for their revelry, and he scribbled upon his ever-dampening paper that he tried to shield from the rain as he wrote. 
It is a cheap morality to go to the ringside and proclaim the brutality of prize fights, or form beneath the gallows tree to preach forth upon the demoralizing effect of public executions. But still the truth is the truth, and how the mob behaved must be told. As we have said, as the showers came more or less heavily, so the crowd thinned and thickened in its numbers, but there was always enough to mark, like the lines of a massive grave, where the drop was to be brought in. From its great quadrangle the sightseers never moved, but from hour to hour, almost from minute to minute, grew noisier, dirtier, and more dense. Till three o'clock it was one long revelry of songs and laughter, shouting and often quarrelling, though to do more justice. There was at least till then a half-drunken, ribald gaiety amongst the crowd that made them all akin. Until about three o'clock, not more than some four thousand, or at the most five thousand, were assembled, and over all the rest of the wide space the white, unoccupied barriers showed up like a network of bones above the mud. But about three the workmen came to finish the last barriers. After the scaffold had been carried to the debtor's door, and from that time the throng rapidly increased in numbers. Someone attempted to preach in the midst of the crowd, but his voice was soon drowned amid much laughter. Then there was another lull, not indeed of quiet, but at least a lull from any preeminent attempt at noise, though every now and then it was broken by that inexplicable sound like a dull blow, followed as before always by laughing, sometimes by fighting. Then again another man stronger in voice, and more conversant with those had had to plead before began the old familiar hymn of the promised land. For a time this man sang alone, but at last he was joined by a few others, when another and apparently more popular voice gave out some couplet in which at once, and if by magic, the crowd joined with a chorus of, Oh my, think I've got to die till this again was substituted by the song of Muller, Muller, he's the man. All these vocal efforts, however, were cut short by the dull rumbling sound, which amid cheers, shouts, whooping, clapping of hands, hisses and cries of why wasn't it brought out for Townley? Uh, this was a prisoner sentenced to death, but had the sentence commuted, thus disappointing the bloodthirsty crowd, heralded the arrival of the dirty old gallows. This was for the time a great diversion, and the crowd cheered or hissed in parts, or as the humour took them, while the horses were removed and the rumbling black box was worked back slowly and with difficulty against the door of the gaol. The shouts and obscene remarks which were uttered as the two upright posts were lifted into their places were bad enough, but they were trifles as compared with the comments which followed the slow efforts of the two labourers to get the crossbeam into place. At last this was finished, and then, amid such yells as only the sightseers, and so disappointed, could give vent to, a strong force of police filled in and took their place, doubly lined in an enclosure around the drop, right before the foremost of the crowd who had kept their places through wet and dry since Sunday night. Then, as every minute the day broke more and more clear, the crowd could be seen in all the horrible reality in which it had been heard throughout the long, wet night. But all, whether young or old, seemed to know nothing, fear nothing, to have no object but the gallows and to laugh curse. Or shout, as in the heaving and struggling forward they gained, or lost in their strong efforts to get nearer to where Muller was to die. 
The journalists for the Times continued to watch, to comment and note the actions of that mob that day. Then a door opened. A door opened from the cage through which he had walked and into open day. The journalist continued. He was pale, but quite calm and collected. He walked with a somewhat measured pace, with his hands clasped in front of him and looking upwards, with a touching expression of countenance. He was dressed with scrupulous care in the clothes which he wore on his trial. Since then he had improved much in appearance, and upon the whole he was commonly looking young man. Without the slightest touch of bravado in his demeanour at this time was quiet and self-possessed in a remarkable degree. From the courtyard he passed with his attendant into the press room, followed by the authorities. There he submitted himself to the executioner and underwent the process of the pinioning courage. While all about him were visibly touched, not a muscle in his face moved, and he showed no sign of emotion. At this trying moment Dr. Capel approached and endeavoured to sustain him again and again. As the executioner was removing his neckerchief, the shirt collar on the arrangement of which some care had evidently been bestowed, the convict moved his head about to allow of that being done that more easily. And when these little articles of personal adornment were stuffed within the breast of his coat, he remained callous and unmoved. The process of pinioning over, Mr. Jonas, the governor, approached the convict and asked him to take a seat, but he declined the offer. A signal having been given by the governor, the prisoner was escorted by the sheriffs and under-sheriffs to the foot of the scaffold. There, Reverend Mr. Davies, the ordinary, leading the way and reading as he went some of the opening verses of the burial service. At the little porra leading to the gallows, the sheriffs and the officers stopped. Dr. Capel alone ascended it with the guilty man. The clergy at once took their place on the line of sawdust which had been laid to make the outline of the drop which falls, and which, without a, such a signal to denote its situation, might easily have been overlooked in the dusky black of the whole well-worn apparatus. Close after him, with a light, natural step, came Muller. His arms were pinioned close behind him. His face was very pale indeed, but still it wore an easy, and, if it could be said at such a time, even a cheerful expression, as much removed from mere bravado as it seemed to be from fear. His whole bearing and aspect were natural. Like a soldier falling into the ranks, he took with a steady step his place beneath the beam, then, looking up and seeing that he was not exactly beneath the proper spot whence the short black link of chain depended, he shifted a few inches and there stood quite still. Following him came the common hangman, who at once, pulling a white cap over the condemned man's face, fastened his feet with a strap and shambled off the scaffold amid low hisses. While this was being done, Dr. Capel, addressing the dying man, said, In a few moments, Muller, you will stand before God. I ask you again and for the last time, are you guilty or innocent? He replied, I am innocent. Dr. Capel said, You are innocent, repeating his own words in the form of a question. Muller answered, God Almighty knows what I have done. Dr. Capel said, God Almighty knows what you have done, again repeating the convict's own words. Does God know that you have done this particular deed? Muller replied, Ich habe es getan. 
Almost as soon as the words had left his lips, his kin spiritual guides quitted the platform and the drop fell. Those who stood close to the apparatus could just detect a movement twice, so slight, indeed, that it could scarcely be called a movement, but rather an almost imperceptible muscular flicker that passed through the frame. This was all, and before the peculiar humming noise of the crowd was over, Muller had ceased to live. As the journalist so eloquently put it, for those that die at Newgate, there is no tomb but Newgate. And it was to such a tomb that he was taken. Those of the scaffold were sentenced to death, but also an eternity of incarceration for the mortal remains, with no access to those that may have loved them. They were to remain solitary. There was to be no funeral, no passing words over the man, other than those final words of Dr. Capel as he begged for Muller to admit guilt. So Muller's remains were unceremoniously placed beneath a stone flag without a word over them said. With the words of the surgeon reporting it, a shameful death. The box that Muller lay in was filled with shavings and quicklime was dusted over. The heavy stone flag then brought over the tomb and sealed the remains in an eternal darkness. In the weeks after his execution, the last words of Muller became a source of speculation as the words were reported by Dr. Capel to the journalist seemed to change with every tale he told, and it remained a source of conjecture that the doors to the trap were opened apparently before Muller had chance to finish his sentence, and instead Dr. Capel had presumed he were to say, Ich habe es getan, but the words it was claimed that were Muller's last were Ich habe es, before those fateful doors fell open and Muller went on through them meaning he quite well wished to once again repeat, Ich habe es nicht getan. I did not do it. And thus, that is where the story ends. Newgate Prison was demolished in the early years of the 20th century, and with it, all of those people who made that fateful walk were lost with it. Muller's story, reasonably well documented, faded as other foul crimes took place but his and that of Mr. Briggs will always be the story of the first murder on British Rail. Thank you for listening to Murder on the Tracks, an Achtung History podcast written and presented by myself, Simon J. James, and produced by the Berlin Tour Guide. Join us again next week for a Christmas special looking at the holiday season in Germany 
under the Hackenkreutz. If you have enjoyed this series, please leave a rating and consider supporting the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash History. Then follow on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. Thank you once again for listening. <laughs>